0: Strategic partner, Elliot Cohen, the Robert Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS. Elliot, how was your
1: Thanksgiving? It was jolly. We were overrun with uh, kids and grandchildren and a uh, niece and a nephew. And there was leftover turkey, but not too much. It was, you know, not one of these things where you have to worry that eventually you're going to get food poisoning because you keep on eating the same bird after three weeks. So, all good. We had a great time and we're ready to uh, have a great conversation with our mutual friend, Will Inboden, who's written a terrific book.
0: Yep. Um, Well, I ate my way through Thanksgiving and now looking forward to the Christmas party holiday season and an additional 10 pounds that I'm going to put on between now and the new year before I go on like a starvation diet. But our guest is Will Inboden, who is The author of a brand new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and The World on the Brink. He is the William Power Chair and Executive Director of the William Clement Center at the University of Texas and an Associate Professor of Public Policy at the LBJ School at the University of Texas. Welcome, Will. Thanks.
2: It's great to be here with both of you.
0: Will, let me kick it off by kind of just asking you to tell us a little bit about where you feel this book fits into the historiography of Reagan there's been no shortage of books in the last few years about Reagan a, a number of them have begun to revise the original views of Reagan uh, you know as an amiable dunce as Clark Clifford famously said I think your book certainly puts paid to to that notion but tell us where do you find that your book uh, fits into the historiography what what does it contribute to our knowledge of Reagan
2: yeah thanks, Eric. And let me first say, as I hope readers will see in the book, uh, I pay abundant tribute to many great uh, scholars and Reagan authors who have come before me, and I'm certainly building on and benefiting from their from their work. If we had a you know a whole hour just to list those names, I, I would, uh, but you can certainly find them in the in the bibliography. Um, but that said, I do think it's safe to say my book is the first of its kind. Whether you know readers can judge whether it's very good or very bad in that, but it's the first book to do a comprehensive assessment of all aspects of Reagan's foreign policy. The Cold War, of course, is the central theme that's in the subtitle, uh, and we'll talk about the contributions there. But I spend quite a bit of time in the book on Asia policy, uh, on Middle East policy, on counterterrorism, on international economics, and you know the trade tensions with Japan. And I wasn't aware of any other book that had tried to. Do such a a survey of all aspects of Reagan's foreign policy, and I did that in part because I just think it's an interesting part of the story, and some of those other policies, especially in Asia, for example, um, less appreciated parts of his his legacy. But also return to this Cold War theme. I want to show how all those different pieces fit together, and oftentimes we're pulling each other apart too. But how they how they related to each other, uh, because even with the Cold War being the most important part of the story, you cannot appreciate or even understand what Reagan and his administration were trying to do with their Cold War policy without uh, understanding all the other challenges that they were that they were dealing with. Then the second. I think somewhat new aspect of my book are a couple of the arguments I make specifically about the Cold War, particularly uh, Reagan's effort to pressure the Soviet system to produce a reformist leader. And that that we'll get into some of what we can talk about, about, you know, how much do we weight his contributions and Gorbachev's contributions uh, to the end of the Cold War. And then the other, trying to make sense of, was his goal to win or to end the Cold War, and arguing that it was a negotiated surrender was his was his ultimate goal there. And again, we can talk about what that means and whether that's persuasive or not. So those would be the what I think our hope are the new contributions of this book to, but it's already a very impressive body of literature on Reagan.
1: Are there uh, new documentary sources that you found yourself going through and? Just a related question, were you surprised by anything that you found?
2: Yeah, I'll mention a couple of surprises and this relates to the the new documents. In the last two or three years of my archival research process of working on the book, Uh, quite a few of the memorandums of conversation, the transcripts of Reagan's meetings with foreign heads of state were declassified. Um, His Gorbachev meetings had already been declassified. You know, those have been out for a few years and are still very interesting. But a lot of his other meetings with uh, allied leaders, with third world leaders, so on, uh, were declassified. And those had some very interesting material. Similarly, um, a number of documents from uh, Vice President George H.W. Bush were, were declassified. I just want to cite is um, Bush's memo to Reagan or you know, dictated memo to Reagan right after Bush had first met Gorbachev in March of 85 at the Chernyenko funeral. And very interesting seeing Bush's initial impressions of Gorbachev and his recommendations to to, to Reagan. And that gets to, I think, the two main surprises for me uh, from the... Um, from the archives were one, how deeply involved in the details of policy Reagan would sometimes be and again emphasis on sometimes right I mean, other times he is, you know, rather detached or reading off cue cards or, or less attentive to details. But on the issues that really mattered to him, uh, especially negotiations with the Soviets, some of the arms control accounts, human rights issues, or even U.S.-Taiwan relations and our arms deal, uh, our arms deal with Taiwan, uh, his hand is quite literally there uh, extensively in the archives. You know, notes he's making on memos, line edits he's doing, things like that. The other interesting finding that really came out is the centrality of his own religious faith to his identity, to his Cold War policies, uh, and to just how much he saw the Cold War as a, a religious war and saw the Soviet communism's atheism as a key vulnerability. And again, a few other scholars had done some some work on that, which I benefited from, but that those themes came out much more extensively in the archives.
1: You know, I just one quick thing on that. And I should say, by the way, one of the things I really liked about the book was that although it's generally a very positive view of reagan you don't elide the the things that are difficult, the failures, the misunderstandings I mean it's a very honest piece of history, which I think it really congratulates you for, just to go back on the religion question, you know it seems to me that he was often portrayed his religious sensibility was portrayed as being somewhat phony mm-hmm. or if if it wasn't phony, it was kind of Hollywood religion, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a sort of a muscular Unitarian God, if there is such a thing, um, and and no more than
2: that. But that's not doesn't sound like that's what you came up with. Yeah, I was, again, really struck. And you, this this comes out in the pages of his diary, which as far as we can tell, when he was writing it, he wasn't intending it for publication, right? These really were his personal thoughts um, and some of his personal correspondence. And just a couple of examples I'll give there are when he is lying on the operating table uh, in the spring of 1981, right after the assassination attempt at GW Hospital. He's very near death. And he... He prays that God will forgive John Hinckley, the man who tried to assassinate him. And Reagan even says, "I feel like since God has forgiven me for my sins, uh, I need to for, you know, pray for this this confused young man to, to be forgiven." This is not some speech he's giving on the campaign trail to a religious group to wear his piety on his sleeve. It's a very personal moment for him. Or when he is uh, you know meeting with Gorbachev in you know their their iconic summit in Moscow in 1988. And Eric, you were you know serving there at U.S. Embassy Moscow at the time. Reagan spends a lot of time in his personal meetings with Gorbachev, trying to persuade Gorbachev to believe in God. Right? I mean, this is and it's a very personal thing for Reagan, and Reagan shares his own personal grief at his son's atheism. And um, again, this is not the usual fare for superpower symmetry. Uh, so, uh, the the personal commitment of Reagan to his faith is, you know, idiosyncratic as it, as it could be. I, I think is very genuine.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other example you use in the book is the letter he writes to his dying father-in-law, Loyal, Loyal yeah. Davis, which you use actually to prefigure this conversation with uh, Gorbachev that uh, takes place some years later in the Moscow summit. You know, the thing I really liked, Will, about the book is this is really kind of grand narrative history, which is hmm. a bit old fashioned, which is probably one of the reasons I like it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm curious whether your experience in government in the State Department of Policy Planning staff and then later on the NSC staff contributed to this. It conveys very well, which is hard for a historian to do, the veil of ignorance behind which policymakers operate. You know, sort of, we know how the story comes out, you know, because we're, you know, living here at the end of the story. But they, of course, didn't know how it was going to come out. And uh, all of this stuff is coming at them that's like a hockey goalie. I mean, you know, there's Taiwan and then there's the Middle East is blowing up and we've got Paul Nitze negotiating with Kaczynski on, you know, INF, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there's this ongoing sort of concatenation of events that keeps hitting people constantly. And you evoke that, I think, very well by using a narrative rather than doing it thematically saying, okay, here's a chapter on Reagan's Latin American policy. Here's a chapter on, you know, the Soviet. Uh, You interweave them all Chronologically, so you really get a sense of how complex
2: the world was that they were facing. Well, thanks, Eric. I'm, I appreciate you picking up on that. And of course, I know you and Elliot both—you uh, know—very accomplished policy careers yourselves, so you understand this firsthand. And that's where I, well, I don't want to claim that my own background in policy gave me a Rosetta Stone of insight that no one else would have. It certainly did shape my approach to trying to tell this story. And yeah, the two things you highlight are really important. First, how for policymakers the future. Is so uncertain, and we, in hindsight, we may know how it played out, but at the time, it just wasn't known. And so, I tried to write with some amount of existential sympathy for Reagan and his team, on asking myself what were, what did the world look like to them at the time? What seemed to be the available plausible options, and judging them by that standard rather than only judging them retrospectively. And uh, the other, of course, is just the simultaneity of events, and you know, I get that phrase from George Shultz himself, as far as. We may be able to look back as a matter of analytical clarity and say, all right, well, let's try to disentangle causality and how the Cold War ends and, you know, what were the structural factors within the Soviet Union and what were the, you know, policy factors from the U.S. or Gorbachev's choices, but... Well Reagan and his team were dealing with all those. they're also dealing with you know economic challenges and trade war with with Japan and uh pressures from Congress on you know Central America funding and yet another hostage crisis in the Middle East or yet another terrorist attack in the in the Middle East or uh, a sanctions you know bill on South Africa that they have to uh, they have to assess all those at once and uh you know want to give the reader at least something of a feel for uh what it is like to be a policymaker when all those different things are crashing in in your inbox and they all need uh, they all need decisions
1: you know and that that really is the power of narrative history and uh, I completely agree with uh, Eric you do a wonderful job of it and it does it just rings true i think if you've if you've seen any of the hurly-burly okay well will you know we're always gracious and hospi- hospitable to our our guests on a uh, uh, shield of the Republic, but we never give them a completely easy time. Nor should you, you know, nor should we. Um, and so what I would like to do is in a somewhat cowardly move, uh, <laughs> I would like, to, I would like to turn to Eric and say, Eric, you knew these people uh, you worked with uh, and for a number of them. Could you tell us where you think uh, will got it just right? Where you think he underestimated people and where you think he overestimated people and if you wrestle him to the ground, maybe he'll change what the paperback looks like. <laughs> Look,
0: I think Will has done a marvelous job of doing pen portraits of the major players. I, I do have some you know minor differences having been having worked in the uh, State Department Secretariat staff uh, under Secretary Haig, and having traveled with Secretary Haig, uh, and then having moved up to Secretary Schultz's personal staff after Secretary Haig resigned slash was fired. I mean, Will does a you know marvelous job of recounting Haig's effort first to tell Reagan all the things he wanted Reagan to do to make Haig stay on as Secretary of State, only to come back the next day and have President Reagan say, thank you very much for your resignation, which Haig had not yet written. <laughs> Look, I think Secretary Haig, my sense, and Will is that in the administration, he was by far the person with the most foreign policy Experience, Secretary Weinberger really had had no major international experience to speak of. Uh, He had been director of OMB. He had been Secretary of HHW or H, which was before I think it was HHW before it became HHS. Yeah, uh, or HEW before it became HHS. Richard Allen had been a staffer for you know uh, in the Kissinger NSC apparatus, but. A relatively junior person with a lot, not a lot of of great experience. Judge Clark, the deputy secretary who was clearly put in place to kind of keep an eye on Haig, was a neophyte, you know, in international relations. So Haig, I think, did himself no service, as you rightly say, by his oversized personality. But I think he also felt that he was the one person other than Vice President Bush who had really some significant, you know, international uh, experience and and so I you know I think he was trying in his own way to serve the president. I think for one, having uh, been part of the uh, Falklands shuttle, or actually was I was in London waiting for him to come back from from Buenos Aires, which he never did. You know, <laughs> I kept waiting, watching the luggage being loaded on the plane, taken off the plane in BA, <laughs> and waiting for him to arrive in London. I think he did a little bit better job, you know, on the Falklands. Uh, than than you suggest, I I think he's a little less pro uh, Argentine. He's definitely conflicted, not not mm-hmm. kind of in the Argentine camp as Jean Kirkpatrick was, but w- wanting to try and balance the two sides. I, I know you take him to task for saying afterwards that he was for England, you know, for the British all along. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think he does a little bit better job in that. You you have a very nice revisionist uh, account of Judge Clark, which you know I I kind of credit up to a point. Mm-hmm. which is that he did bring some order to a very disorderly uh, national security process but you know he never really mastered the issues i mean he really was mm-hmm. you know a neophyte and in the end of the day he only had the job for 22 months uh, before mm-hmm. before he before he left so it's true that you know a number of important documents get written particularly the national security uh, directives that you cite on uh, Russia or Soviet policy and on uh, U.S. Uh, you know, strategy. But, you know, he's not around for like six years like George Shultz. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he, so I guess I would modulate the you know Judge Clark as, uh, you know, as statesman. Um, and then on Shultz, I mean, this is going to seem very churlish on my part, since you credit Shultz with uh, you know, being arguably the uh, greatest Secretary of State since Dean Acheson, a, a judgment mm-hmm. with which I totally agree. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I have you know, I wrote a appreciation of George. Uh, I was his special assistant. Full disclosure between 1982 mm-hmm. and '84. And uh, you know, there's the old saw that no no man is a hero to his valet. And you know, I'm I'm here to say that you know George Schultz is the exception to that mm-hmm. to that general rule. But but you depict him through the course of having said that you know at the outset when you introduce him when he replaces Haig, you you depict him as being you know occasionally arrogant of you know having a somewhat fragile ego. I guess I would say I thought he had a healthy ego, uh, mm-hmm. but not one that, for instance, not one like Haig's that got confused about who was the president and who was the secretary of state. Schultz, mm-hmm. as you yourself acknowledge. Never ever deviated from the view that the president made policy and he would execute it. He would mm-hmm. he would give his you know best advice to the president. But so those are my kind of you know personal, just you know nuances of difference
1: with with mm. your depiction. So I'm I'm just uh, trying to see whether there's w- uh, sweat pouring down uh, Will's face. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, say yeah. these
1: things. Will, let him no, have like- it.
2: No, thanks, Eric. That is really, uh, really helpful, and uh, you know, these are you know some of those relate to you know conversations we've had for uh, ongoing now, and I, I look forward to continuing for for many many years to come. And I don't think we're we're that far apart. I will say on on Hague, I um I see him as a a very tragic figure, uh, and I went into the process, the, the beginning of the research, wanting to. Like him more, wanting to give him an even you know more positive per, per, portrayal. Uh, so I certainly hope it doesn't look like adding sort of axe to grind, and I try to emphasize some of his areas of strength. You're absolutely right about the tremendous experience he brought. On paper, he was the perfect man for the job. I mean, so in that sense, it made sense that Reagan hired him. Certainly, when it came to uh, you know his experience and credentials. But the tragic part of him is his hubris or some of his other interpersonal traits or, or lack thereof just became crippling and uh, even more than any ideological differences he, he may have had, you know, obviously the standard narrative on Reagan's staff feuding is it's between the conservatives and the moderates. And that's partly true, but, the only thing the conservatives and moderates agreed on is they all hated Haig, yeah. um, and yeah. uh, uh, and so the fact that he managed to alienate Mike Deaver, Jim Baker, and Dick Allen, and Ed Meese, and you know, and Weinberg, everyone, it, that that, and Reagan himself, that that took some doing. And I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get past that.
0: Yeah, no. So just, just to to add to what you say, I mean, I actually, you know, you describe the sort of. Uh, <laughs> The final days of Al Haig as Secretary of State uh, on that uh, European swing, and I, I would—I guess—I would say two things, uh, Will. One is, Haig, I think, deserves more credit for pacifying European concerns about the Reagan administration when it came in than maybe—maybe mm-hmm. maybe one gets from reading your account. Um, yeah, I, I think that was really a very important element, because there was a lot of anxiety in Europe about Reagan when he first appeared on the scene. Yeah. And and Haig did a lot because he was just coming out of being supreme allied commander and knew pretty much mm-hmm. everybody in Europe to sort of allay those concerns. And I think his presence in the cabinet helped you know, allay those concerns. But you're 100% mm. right about how, uh, you know, all the, you know, the Troika and the White House, Baker, Deaver, Meese, all had been completely alienated uh, by Haig. By by that trip, I, I actually uh, was part of the advance team for the Versailles Summit, part of that mm-hmm. trip. Uh, and so I, you know, I did the advance, the pre-advance. I was, and I was in constant contact with the White House staff and I watched as literally, folks who were working for my Deaver, because all those folks worked for mm-hmm. Deaver, did everything they could to push every button possible to make Al Haig self-destruct. And the tra- the, uh. the tragedy is, he he you know he took the bait. But they yeah. they made it you know I, they left me in the position of trying to make sure he could get in the right motorcade. I had to get a French helicopter to take him when they moved from Paris to Versailles because they wouldn't put him in Marine One or two. You know, which was crazy. Um at one point the White House lead uh advance forbade me from talking uh in French to my French, you know, colleague because I was trying to um anyway, it, I watched that happen and so you're right. I mean, but they they literally were trying to force Haig to to self immolate on that trip, and then he did as soon as he got back to Washington.
1: So let me ask you a question on that score, because one of the things that struck me well about this is it, it did bring back, uh, that indictment of Reagan as a terrible manager, mm-hmm. you know, just the amount of backbiting and also the flame outs, you know, mm-hmm. Richard Allen, Casey, Haig, mm-hmm. epic feuds, you know, Weinberger versus Schultz is this first your judgment as both a historian, but also as a practitioner, was this just maybe a you know somewhat enhanced version of what always goes on in administrations where there, are, you know, ice picks sprouting up, out of kidneys, um, <laughs> or was this something that was that did reflect a weakness of of Reagan's?
2: That's you know, a great question, Elliot, and I, I'm gonna gonna answer to have a number of thoughts, but I want to come back to this one final thing on Hague, uh, Eric. Just to give credit where credit is due, and I think I say this in the book. Want to make sure it's on the record here. Uh, back to his efforts to pacify the Europeans, the final tragedy of Haig is, you know, I think it's clear that the final precipitating thing on why he quits or gets fired is his difference with Reagan over the pipeline sanctions. Um, And Haig was right about that, you know? And that's why Reagan then has to lift the pipeline sanctions because it caused so much friction with Europeans and it was going to jeopardize the INF deployments and everything. So I just wanted to put put that out there that um, that is the final tragedy of Haig is even when he's correct on an issue as far as what would best serve Reagan that's also what causes him to lose his job. So, right. um, exactly right. uh, yeah, uh, but Elliot to, to your question, you know, I, I think it's, it's pieces of everything you're talking about. So on the one hand, every white house, every administration has its feuding and has its differences that just comes with the territory with talented people with healthy egos and when the stakes are very high. Um, so in that sense, the Reagan administration's feuding is different in degree, but not kind than previous White House, a different degree than I think it is. It is worse than most other White Houses, but it's not like most other White Houses are you know, islands of Pacific calm and, and unity as, as opposed to this. Well, they all have their feuding. This one is, ju- is just worse. Um, and then second, I think the feuding in this one is a function of a few things. One, this is again, one of those ironies is Most of these people are very capable, Uh, you know, some more capable than others, right? But I mean, uh, you know, Jim Baker, very capable. Cap Weinberger, very capable. George Schultz, very capable. Bill Clark, I think, pretty, pretty, pretty capable. Casey Kirkpatrick, Kirk they're all very, very capable. and all have very strong opinions, and they're going to have some differences there. And so, some of the feuding is just a function of these very skilled, capable people with some big differences. A big part of it is Reagan's um, aversion to conflict and what I think are pretty lousy, you know, management skills overall. Like he doesn't pay a lot of attention to management, and, and when he does, uh, he's uh, you know, not policing or infor- uh, not policing these feuds, not enforcing um, uh, more, more, more order on the administration. And then some of it also is just a function of the stakes. These are impossibly high stakes, right? It's quite literally the fate of the world, the fate of humanity, you know, this totalitarian, you know, conflict against this, uh, you know, evil totalitarian foe. Um, so that just brings a pretty combustible com- combination. You know, the paradox or the, the puzzle is, as you and Eric have both asked in different ways is, how is this administration still able to achieve some pretty significant policy successes amidst that organizational dysfunction? And I think, uh, I'll give two answers to that. One is at times the feuding produces a sort of creative tension. A somewhat silly analogy I've used before is with the Rolling Stones, one of my favorite bands, right? For most of the, you know, the decades of the Rolling Stones, these guys are always feuding with each other, right? Uh, they are, they are, you know, feuding and having, you know, and have these different riffs and breaking up and that part. And yet when they all come together, they're making some pretty awesome music. Uh, and it's partly that creative tension. There's some of that going on with the Reagan team, but then there's also the fact that on the big issues that matter most, um, Where Reagan becomes personally involved, makes the decisions, enforces the decisions, and then makes George Shultz first among equals. Really elevates the State Department as primus center Paris uh, in American national security policy, especially in his second term. Uh, that's when I think they drive home to get some of the some of the big big successes. Of course, you know dealing with the Soviets is a big part of that. But frankly, I think the reordering of uh, us the U.S. posture in Asia and especially the transformation in U.S. Japan relations is also a big part of that.
1: Yeah, they, you know, I have to say that was uh, for me one of the more interesting parts of a very interesting book about the extent to which Reagan always saw Japan less as a competitor than as potentially very important ally. I thought that was really yeah. interesting. Okay, so let me now take my chance and see if I can get you to change things for the paperback edition. Okay. Uh, I, I may be too much under the influence of having recently read Vladislav Zubak's uh, Collapse, mm-hmm. which is, a, I think, the best account of... The end of the Soviet Union, uh, at least that I've read, and of course it's written from somebody who was on the inside mm-hmm. of uh, of Russia, and you know his overwhelming argument is, you know, it wasn't Star Wars, it wasn't Afghanistan, it was Mikhail Gorbachev was trying to reform a system that was unreformable. Now he wanted to reform mm-hmm. it in part because there were signs of sclerosis there, but mm-hmm. but he's very clear that this the end did not have to come. At uh, this point, the Soviet Union probably could have lasted for decades, uh, if not even conceivably generations. And I mean, I think he goes even a bit further than that, suggesting that uh, the Americans made it more difficult. But he really does, I think, reject the the thesis that this book argues, which is one, frankly, that I have tended to believe. Uh, Just now I'm in a bit of a state of doubt. That uh, it was the very kind of comp- hard competitive strategy of the Reagan administration that finally did in the Soviet Union, so could you speak to that
2: yeah um and first I, I do want to well I, I will you know answer the, answer that uh, directly and certainly have a number of thoughts, and you know readers can you know, read the book and uh, make up their own mind and I think vlad's book is tremendous too right i I benefited quite quite a, quite a bit from reading it um you know, I want to be clear that Gorbachev it is an essential part of the story, and without Gorbachev, I don't think we see the peaceful end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the the, the way the way that we do. And so, even though my account puts more weight on Reagan, and I'll come to that in in a second, it, this is not a monocausal argument by any means. Um, the the two of them, I think, are playing essential roles, and then as well as structural factors and other things. But the um, uh, two big themes, I guess, to to focus on, on why I think the American role and the Reagan role in, in particular are, are a very important part of the story. And I argue you know, certainly maybe even a little more important than, than Gorbachev is first, just running the counterfactual. Um, uh, up until Reagan, the Soviet Union was a permanent part of the geopolitical landscape. And, you know, no previous American president had liked or wanted to you know, partner with the Soviet Union necessarily, but none of them had envisioned the potential collapse of the Soviet system or trying to put bring that sort of pressure to bear on it. All of them had pursued in different ways, different versions of containment and, and coexistence. And so just as a social science experiment, the first time we then have an American president come along with a very different strategic vision who believes in the vulnerability and brittleness of the Soviet Union well before Gorbachev come, come, comes along and then implements policies designed. Designed to accelerate those those pressures, that's just a new part of the equation. So we have to run a counterfactual, you know, impossible one. What if Carter had had a second term? What if uh, somehow Ford or maybe even H.W. Bush was the American, you know, the Republican president in the nineteen eighties, and you don't have that same level of pressure on the on the Soviet system. Sure, there were the the internal rot. Um, Sure, you know, Gorbachev makes some very important and for the Soviet you know, systems say calamitous uh, decisions, but those are not taking place in a vacuum. They're taking place against this context of this accelerated pressure on the military front, economic front, ideological, political, you know, the whole, the whole gamut from the United States and from, and from Reagan. Um, so that, that can't be disregarded. Then the second, and I, you know, do think this is a relatively novel part of my book's argument, is it's very clear from, you know, from the get go, Reagan talking with Dick Pipes, trading memos. Uh, you know, codifying this in NSDD seventy-five, part of Reagan's strategy is to pressure the Soviet system to produce a reformist leader to strengthen these these reformist reformist impulses. Uh, and that does not mean that Reagan dictates the Soviets pick Gorbachev in March of eighty-five. He's still more a product of the internal system, but you know we can't ignore if this is a very explicit part of the American strategy uh, and. That that strategy includes includes specific policy lines designed to pressure the system to to produce a reformer. Uh, I also don't think we see Gorbachev coming to power, or at least along along the same way that he did, uh, without that pressure. And in turn, this is one reason why Reagan recognizes Gorbachev sooner than most others as a legitimate reformer because he'd been looking for a reformer. And sometimes, if you are looking for something, you find it. Now, that can sometimes be a trap, uh, but in this case, I think it was a real it was a real opportunity. Yeah,
0: I want to come back to to that at some point uh, in the conversation, Will, because at the end of the Reagan presidency, and, and you point out actually throughout the Reagan presidency, he's being attacked by conservatives. Oh yeah, yeah, for, you know, for yeah. being for being too moderate, for being you know for having you know given allowed you know. Uh, a bunch of moderates like Jim Baker and Richard Darman to kind of take over and run things and 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 uh, certainly in 88 at the uh, Moscow summit after the INF treaty Charles Krauthammer late Charles Krauthammer is attacking him uh, you know for going soft it, it's you know uh George
2: Will attacks him yeah you know many you know, times in print yeah there's a there's a lot of that
0: but before we get to that I want to uh, you know get to this question we raised earlier about how does this Policy process that's so dysfunctional produced this policy success we've just been talking about. Along the way, there are a couple of policy disasters. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I mean that that the um, that the bad process at least allowed to happen. You talk about them in the book. I'd like you to talk about them. You know, with us for the audience. One is Reykjavik. I mean, no, I don't think there's ever been a summit that was done as much on the fly as as Reykjavik, and it's it's a fascinating kind of vignette into how the interaction of policy and, and process. Ken Edelman, of course, has written a book, which is, I think, mm-hmm. about to be turned into a, a movie. I think Elliot and I will have Ken on when, when that comes out. But the other episode, of course, besides Reykjavik, is Iran-Contra, which mm-hmm. almost brings down the whole Reagan presidency in which, you know, yeah. he almost gets impeached over. So- yeah. Tell us how do those things come about and how does how does he recover from them?
2: Yeah, sure. And and just one other one I just want to put out there for the record, Eric, about what I think is another policy disaster produced in part by this very dysfunctional process is of course the marine deployment in Beirut in, in 1983 and then the you know the tragic deaths of 241 Marines. Um again, there were not very many good options there, but in some ways what Reagan settled on was um the the worst combination of Putting them there, but without the necessary authorities and uh, uh and, re- and resources to so either either go hard or go home essentially he, he did he didn't either but uh Reykjavik um yeah, you know don't try this at home right this is not the normal way to do symmetry with you know months of pre negotiations and elaborate choreography and planning at the same time and and the initial outcome seems to be disastrous, no agreement whatsoever, and you know Reagan and Gorbachev both walk out we you know with you know, ashen-faced, uh, you know, chagrin and disappointment. That said, reading the transcripts of their uh, the Reykjavik meetings, it's also pure Reagan. This is. I think a very good case for why Reagan himself matters as President more than you know his advisors or being a product of uh, of the staff system or anything because none of that is there. It is just him uh negotiating with Gorbachev, making it up as they as they go along, and that's also where you see his tenacity in holding on to sdi uh his vision of a nuclear nuclear free world um his uh, his continued commitment on on human rights, right? As he continues to to, to bring bring those up, and so Reykjavik is obviously short term disappointment, but I do think we see in it the seeds of you know, some of the bigger successes such as the INF treaty and central collapse of the, union, Iran-Contra. Um, I I hope it's very clear in the book that I'm extremely critical of Reagan and his team on that. So in that sense, it is not at all a revisionist case of, Oh, there was nothing, you know, nothing to see here, or it was, it was definitely be fine. What I did try to do with Iran-Contra is at least try to explain for readers how it came about. Like, how do we get ourselves in the minds of these you know different people who are the architects of this this disastrous scandal um, and and then provide some some context for how 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 reagan recovers from it and i do say and this is my one more benign revisionist take is it's the only scandal i'm aware of in presidential history which is done out of arguably pure policy motives. Uh, You know, there's no uh, personal, you know, there's no effort to enrichment. There's no effort to hijack your opponent's campaign. This is not a sex scandal. Some of the normal uh, venal motives as presidential scandals that you find in Watergate or Clinton stuff or Trump and Zelensky, um, those aren't there. The motives are, let's get hostages released. That's a good motive. Let's see if we can improve relations with one of our main adversaries in the Middle East, Iran. Terrible idea, but it's at least it's done with a good motive. And let's start, try to support anti-communist fighters in in Nicaragua. I think that's a good motive. I think communism was worth fighting against. The problem is, of course, they make catastrophically bad policy decisions and arguably break the laws along the way. And a lot of this comes, as you pointed out, because... Uh, you know, Don Regan is a weak chief of staff at the time, Bud McFarland and John Poindexter, the two national security advisors, are not properly suited for those roles. Uh, Reagan is sometimes in the dark on some of this. And then when he is involved, such as authorizing the trading arms for hostages in Iran, he's making really bad decisions. Um, he's ignoring strong objections from Schultz and Weinberger, just like the only thing they do agree on is don't do this, Mr. President. This is a really bad, really bad idea. Um And so I certainly don't try to exonerate any of them in in, in my telling of it, Uh, but but also point out that because Reagan finally comes clean, finally uh, tells the truth, finally uh, apologizes to the American people, uh, and then turns the corner and, you know, has some... uh, uh, regains the initiative in the cold war with uh, you know the Brandenburg gate speech and so on and so forth he's able to survive the scandal but as you know having lived through it um and i remember watching it on tv when i was in you know high school at the time it very nearly broke that broke that presidency which would have been a disaster
1: you know you, you i mean you cover a number of other lesser stumbles but for example the bitburg episode which was oh, yeah pretty pretty shameful could I, if I could change the topic a little bit um you know, again, I think there was a very unfair caricature of Reagan as dumb
2: mm-hmm.
1: when I think everything we now know suggests that he was not himself an intellectual, but he had really thought through the big ideas uh, in the course of his career before becoming president. Um, but the other thing that is, you know, really struck me reading your book is the extent to which you you have uh, a whole series of intellectuals, whether it's Gene Kirkpatrick or you know Richard Pipes, uh, and this is just in the foreign policy space. You also have them in the economic space and, and elsewhere. Uh, Irving Kristol, who are engaged in various ways in the formulation of policy. So, could you talk a little bit about Reagan and ideas, or or and, and Reagan and the intellectual? Because I think that's yeah.
2: really a fascinating angle. Thanks. So I'm I'm glad you picked up on that because it it, it was something that was very interesting to me and is an important part of the story. And I guess in a nutshell, I'll put it this way: Reagan is certainly not an intellectual himself. He wouldn't pretend to be otherwise. I don't want to make you know such a uh, such a radical case there, but he is a man of ideas. He's a man who values ideas, and he's a man who saw he's a president who saw the Cold War as primarily a battle of ideas. And because he framed it that way, uh, I think he in turn. Uh, attracted a remarkable array of conservative intellectuals you mentioned a, a number of them you know a number of others we could we could cite as well even on you know Africa policy Chet crocker um uh, uh Gaston Seeger on Asia policy uh you know Paul Wolfowitz on everything Paul was working on right um and uh, at one point, I can't remember the exact numbers, but like for his 1980 uh, foreign policy advisory team on his campaign, of the 60 people who had signed on, something like 48 of them have PhDs. Uh, and and a significant number of those were tenured professors at Georgetown, Harvard, Stanford, right? So uh, it's like he attracted every... Uh, you know, conservative in academia or adjacent to, to academia, and I think that's no accident because they saw in him as someone who valued ideas, uh, sees ideas as you know one of the main drivers of America's role in the world and one of the main uh, dividing lines between the the free world and the, the the Soviet bloc. And so, it's a it's a very important, I think, underappreciated part of the story, even while you're dealing with a president who is just has a bachelor's degree from Eureka College. So.
1: You know, I I, I I do wonder whether we would ever be likely to see something like that again, uh, at least on the Republican side of the House. Uh, I, At the moment, yeah. it doesn't feel like it.
2: Yeah, it, it, it certainly it certainly doesn't. Um, and I, you know, obviously I wrote this book as a pure history. I don't have a concluding chapter of 10 lessons for today or anything, but I do hope that readers will see in it uh, – some relevant insights for today, or maybe a picture of a a better time in conservative foreign policy, uh, which is is worthy of revisiting. Amen to that.
0: So, well, you know, George Schultz once told me, I'm curious your reaction to this. And this is in connection with Reagan's uh, nuclear abolitionism, which you uh, have adverted to in this conversation a couple of times, and which our friend Paul Leto has written about. You're not the first to write about that, but you do cover it. George told me one time, he thought that Ronald Reagan was able to conceive of a world without nuclear weapons because he had, because he was about a decade older than everybody else in his administration, he had come to political maturity before the advent of nuclear weapons, while almost everybody else, with the possible exception of Paul Nitze in his administration, had come to political maturity at the end of World War II, or as part of the World War II generation and, and viewed the World War II settlement as kind of dispositive.
2: Do you buy that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, I'm, I I mentioned a few times in different ways in the book, but didn't fully explore it. How Reagan is, you know, very much a product of his his formative years, especially in the 30s and early 40s, and you know, the the depression, which is why he's so opposed to protectionism and so opposed to I- isolationism. Uh, but also remembering what a a pre nuclear world was was like. And as you, I'm glad you mentioned Paul Leto. His book is outstanding on that, and he points out that. The first known anti-nuclear statement we have from Reagan comes from I think 1945, right after the use of the first bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and so so Reagan's uh, anti-nuclear stance runs runs very deep, and I think Schultz that was one of the many reasons why why uh, Schultz paired paired with him so well on that. Most of the rest of Reagan's national security team, Poindexter especially, uh, Weinberg especially, don't share his abolitionism and are, are are horrified by it. And Eric, I do want to come back to. One uh, or two things you said earlier on on Schultz, just to sort of clarify, um, because I think you and I hold him in very you know very high very high esteem. I will say that I hold Schultz in such high esteem that I started to worry. I would be too rosy in my portrayal of him in the book and I self-consciously made myself put in a few negative things. Uh, This is, (laughs) this is true. I mean, because I didn't want it to be almost this, you know, cartoonishly positive uh, uh, depiction, depiction of him. Um, So, but I will say this um, where I will fault Schultz and I'd love to hear your, your comeback on this. If you think I'm missing something, um, I don't see any evidence that he built close uh, collaborative ties with any of his peers in the cabinet. Um, it, now, of course, he built close ties with the person who mattered most—the the president himself, right? And that's all that matters at the end of the day. But there, I think there's something to that about why was he not able to build close ties with at least you know one or two other cabinet members or partners across the range of him? He was just at at odds with so 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 many of them.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, I remember when he first came on, and someone someone asked him. Might have been someone in the press you know, would he be able to get along with Cap Weinberger better than Al Haig had? And he said, oh, yeah, I I get along fine with Cap. You know, he used to work for me um, at OMB and then later at uh, Bechtel, I think. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think he may have overestimated the degree to which he would be able to manage that uh, relationship, which was a very difficult Mm -hmm. one, um, Mm -hmm. really difficult. It's hard, I think, to fault him for not developing a close relationship with uh, any of the national security advisors because there was like, what, seven of them during the yeah, Reagan. Six. Yeah. six of them during the Reagan presidency. So, you know, they yeah. it, they were kind of a rotating cast. And his relationship with Jim Baker isn't great uh, yeah. as, as, you know, Treasury secretary. He yeah. was actually much the one cabinet member to whom he was genuinely close was Nick Brady. Um, and, and he did have a very close relationship with Brady, less so with Baker and Baker. I think when he comes in as secretary kind of makes it clear that he's going to be the anti George Schultz. I remember, you know, Baker saying, I'm not going to New York and having a dentist schedule at the, you know, UN general assembly the way George Schultz did. So he, Mm -hmm. you know, and he very pointedly changes the model of management of the state department, I think for the worse. I mean george schultz yeah. got the most out of the foreign service i think than any secretary of state he understood the deficiencies of the foreign service he understood it's a kind of a strategic institution but that it had enormous subject matter expertise that he and the president could make use of and so he empowers foreign service officers and political appointees both at the assistant secretary level you mentioned some of them paul wolfowitz gaston seeger chet crocker go out and do stuff and they do a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff And Mm -hmm. Baker comes in with a completely different model, which is to concentrate power on the seventh floor with himself and a group of undersecretaries and undersecretary equivalents uh, and run the whole world from up there. And they do a reasonable job of it in the first year and a half of the Bush administration uh, until they discover that, you know, they haven't been paying attention to Saddam Hussein, who is about to invade, you know, Kuwait. So, uh, you know, they are different, you know, strengths and weaknesses to different models for managing the State Department. But. but it's an interesting question you raise about George's lateral relationships. I will tell you he was revered by the people who
2: worked for him in the State Department. Mm-hmm. So, so oh, I, yeah, just a quick thought on that is when I worked at State, you know, 20 years ago and would travel, you know, to our different embassies and talk to, you know, the lung the serving FSOs there, I'd always ask them, who's the best secretary you ever served under? And they all said Schultz. And they'd often all say, I'm a Democrat, but it was George Schultz.
1: Yeah, the only thing that would qualify that for me is I remember asking the same question of a bunch of FSOs and they said Colin Powell. You know, which made me question their judgment. But um, let me ask, uh, as a since we're coming on time, uh, a big question which you end with, which is, where does he belong in the pantheon of American presidents in terms of foreign policy? And, and this was really the only point where I said I don't think I agree with Will. Mm-hmm. You you compared him to FDR, and mm-hmm. actually, in some ways, favorably, and mm-hmm. I that. I just i I mean i th- I don't underestimate the challenges that um, uh, Reagan faced, but he was dealing with a big, prosperous uh, country, even with the initial economic difficulties that we were having with a a failing Soviet Union with a very weak China uh, with a Europe which was fractious but was not really going to throw over American leadership, with a uh, Japan as an emerging ally. I mean it, obviously it was very, very difficult. it's always very difficult. But but when you look at the hand that he was dealt as opposed to the hand that FDR was dealt or Truman was dealt,
2: I, I just think you have to put him in the rank below that. So could you tell me if I'm wrong? You're partially wrong. Uh so I will I will say the two greatest foreign policy presidents of the 20th century are FDR and Reagan. Okay. And I'm a big fan of Truman, but I would put put Reagan Reagan below there. Um First of all, I think you're right. The FDR inherits a more difficult hand and, you know, kind of winning World War Two is you know, obviously the, the ultimate challenge, the ultimate challenge there. On the other hand, Reagan does inherit a pretty difficult hand, too. Not as difficult as FDR, but pretty difficult. And Reagan wins the Cold War peacefully. And again, I'm not faulting FDR for World War II breaking out or, or anything like that. Right there, There's much, much more, much more going on there. But uh, I think we have to look at not just the successful policy outcomes. FDR, you know, victory for the Allies in World War II. Reagan, you know, peaceful end of the, of the Cold War, but also Reagan's able to do that at much less of a cost than than, than FDR. Um, and in turn, I think we see. Positives like the global advance of democracy even more under Reagan than we do say under 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 FDR. So um, uh, as as far as a global legacy, I think the Reagan one holds holds up pretty well. So but if, it'll I'm, be an endless debate, I'm sure.
1: Well, well, we will continue this. I'll just say this really is truly great narrative history, and I want to congratulate on you on it, Eric. Before bringing this home, could you just tell Will that I'm right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think FDR was greater than than Reagan, but I think. In the second half of the 20th century, Reagan stands out as the most uh, most accomplished president. And I put him ahead of Eisenhower, which a lot of historians, I think, would probably you know, quibble with. But uh, I, to me, it's not even close. Our guest has been William Bowden, the author of The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink. It's a great read. It really uh, will. It just it, it reads like a dream you're great to have come on and spent time with us. And uh, obviously there's so much more we could talk about. We're going to have to, I'm sure, bring you back in the future to continue some of these discussions and, and maybe uh, some of the great work you're doing uh, uh, down in uh, UT on the Texas National Security Review and other things.
2: Here, here. Well, thanks so much, guys. It's been a real pleasure.